The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Good to see you back for the second part of my conversation with Adam Jacoby, CEO and founder of MyVote. We talk about democracy, the process of democracy, and how technology potentially can really be a game changer. Democracy and politics are mutually exclusive in both philosophy and practice, which is to say, if you are engaging in the act of politics, you will never deliver democracy. And if you are delivering a genuine democracy, you have no need for politics. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. If governments or, you know, reach out to you to ask questions, they also feel something is wrong. You know, they want to know about democracy and they see, okay, there is perhaps a democratic system, but there is no consensus. And I would like to um, circle back to the notion of consensus. And we touched it, uh, on it a little earlier in our conversation as well, Adam. And I wonder the system that you established with my vote. Uh, you say, I don't look at parties, I don't look at elections, but I look at the actual, you know, the potential laws or, or you know, movements that are important mm -hmm. to people. How do you ascertain it with my vote? How yeah, do you go out and ask the questions and get really people's uh, true feeling on it? Okay, so, so I'll, I'll tell you kind of how it works uh, without going into all the minutia because we'd be here for 16 years talking about it. Um, in essence, what we do is we ask non-binary questions first. So that, that's a core part of what a democracy needs, is you need non-binary conversations. And so every vote that we put out, um, we always offer four choices. That's the first thing. So there's none of this Republicans versus Democrats. There are four different pathways we can take, at least, on every issue that we look at. Um, the next thing that becomes critical is every one of those choices needs to be fact-based um, and have peer-reviewed data. That's really critical. Um, and so I'll give you an example of the last beta test vote we ran. Um, so we ran, it was in Australia specifically. Um, we've run votes elsewhere, but this one was in Australia. And um, we asked uh, a question around energy policy. And so the question we ask, it's a very innocuous kind of question. We say, when it comes to energy policy, I want my government to prioritise X. And the X, there are four Xs. So I want my government to prioritise price to the consumer, which is bring the price of energy down because we have one of the most expensive energy markets in the world. So, and if you listen to the government and the opposition, that is the only thing they've spoken about for two years. We'll bring your electricity prices down, we'll bring your gas prices down. So that's option one. I want them to prioritise price to the consumer. The second thing we asked was, you know, I want my government to prioritise uh, carbon emissions reduction as a priority. So no matter what, move to renewables, stop fossil fuels, because we want to reduce carbon. The third choice was baseload energy for the economy. And if something like that becomes the majority position, then all of a sudden something like nuclear, which we don't have in Australia, becomes a part of the conversation because that provides enormous baseload energy opportunity. And then the fourth, um, I want my government to prioritise international obligations, Paris, Kyoto, et cetera, et cetera. So... We provide those choices and then we provide, in every vote we've ever done, we've had no less than 125 international peer-reviewed research papers that show the legitimacy of all four of those choices. Now, nobody's going to read 125 research papers. I'm sure as fuck not going to read it. So <laughs> what happens is 
Um, you know, most people, to your point earlier, they want to put the kids to bed and get food on the table and pay the mortgage and go to work and, you know, maybe have a little bit of time to walk around the beach or do something with each other, right? Nobody wants to be reading reams and reams and reams of policy papers. So what we do is we extract the critical points for each of those four choices and put them into a mini information pack. Now, if you then want to verify and look at where those statistics come from, you can, and it's all free. Voting's free, downloading it's free, reading the documents are free. Um, you know, this is not about making money. This is about delivering democracy. Uh, but in those information packs, the way that we've constructed it is that if you do not open all four information packs, your voting light never turns on. So we ah, say okay. if you choose not to inform yourself, we choose not to listen to you. Ah, that's important, though. That's really critical in the system because you have the vetted information, you parcel it up again, vetted to um, whoever might partake uh, in that vote, but you have to do your homework as well. I mean, it's already parceled out to you in something digestible. Yeah. Just at least look at all the four options be before yeah. you the vote. That's good. And, and again, at the time when we did this, a lot of particularly politicians were saying to us, nobody will ever read it, nobody will ever look at it. But we got it down to, you know, it's like four or five minutes. I think on average it was about six and a half minutes. Um, to go through the information pack. So we're not talking about a huge investment of time. And if all of a sudden you know that the majority results of that effort is somebody will be bound to that outcome, and I'll explain that in a minute later, then all of a sudden it's an investment worth making, right? So you've got these four choices, you've got these information packs, you open it up, you can't vote unless you've looked at them. And here's where it gets, you know, if you're a democracy um, enthusiast like me, it gets a bit sexy. So the opportunity is... We don't ask you to vote for one of those four choices. We ask you to vote for as few or as many as you think are in the best interest of your country. And so you could say, you know, I want baseload energy and I want price to the consumer, or I want carbon emissions reduction and I want international obligations, or I want three of them, or I want one of them, or I want none of them, or I want all of them. And we don't tell you what to vote. You decide what you think makes sense based upon the information provided to you. And what happens when you ask that question in that way and you've said, and again, this is critical, critically important, what you don't see on our platform is that, you know, this particular view is what the Democrats want and this particular view is what the Republicans want. We don't talk about parties. We don't talk about any of that. These are just choices and here is the information to support those choices. Which do you think makes sense? And every time you do that, you'll get a huge group of people who go, based on that evidence, this makes sense to me. This is, this is where I think we should go. And so you might, so I'll tell you how those, that particular vote worked out. So we gave those four choices, as I explained. Baseload energy for the economy, 11%. So 11% of thousands and thousands of people who voted, voted for that as the priority. This was the big shocker. Price to the consumer, which it was all the government and the opposition had spoken about for two years, 24%. 24% said that was the priority, but that's all their government was talking about and that's all their opposition was talking about. Uh, international obligations, 84%. 84% of people said we are part of an international community and our priority should be maintaining our responsibility to the rest of the world. But the biggest shocker, 88% carbon emissions reduction first. So... What's fascinating about this was I then had an opportunity after this vote to sit with the then leader of the opposition party. So the person who was running for prime minister in Australia, who was on the left, the opposition leader. And his party, being on the left, is more open to, you know, more progressive, renewable, carbon emission reduction type policies. 
but their policies did not reflect those outcomes. And when I sat with him, I said, you know, all you've spoken about and all your counterpart, the Prime Minister, has spoken about is price to the consumer. Well, we asked the public what they thought. What percentage do you think thought price to the consumer was the most important? And he said, 25%. And I said, very good, it was 24%. And he sat up in his chair and he was very proud of himself that he came so close to the answer. And I said, but here's the underlying problem. You know what people want and you're not giving it to them. How can you ask people to vote for you if you know that what they want is carbon emissions reduction and your policies do not reflect that will? You know the answers and you're not doing them anyway. And this is the inherent problem with democracy, that what we get are ideological choices that are not based upon what the people want, they are not based upon the best available evidence that can be provided, and they are not based upon actually having a dialogue with the community. It's we have a worldview and an ideology, and so whatever the question is, we'll find a way to fit that ideology into the answer. And that's our fundamental problem. And so my contention is, and I'm writing a book about this at the moment, which is called Mythocracy, is that democracy and politics are mutually exclusive in both philosophy and practice, which is to say, if you are engaging in the act of politics, you will never deliver democracy. And if you are delivering a genuine democracy, you have no need for politics. Very true. I mean, that means just, okay, vote and go ahead. And then there will be the executive that will enact whatever the majority really voted for. But it's flabbergasting to me that this kind of pre preconception that, of course, prices matters to everybody. And then the politicians base all their agenda and also their policies on that, whereas 88% really have a different priority. And this is uh, coming back to the point we made earlier, Adam, about consensus and that it is possible that you can find consensus with the right kind of system. So when you confronted that particular politician there with the fact that, mm -hmm. hey, you kind of, okay, a quarter of the population does uh, care about the price of energy, but you know, 88%, uh, look at that one. What would you do? How did he react? Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance. And let's get back to the conversation. Um, so, so I'm very rarely met with a whole lot of love from politicians, just generally, um, because it's, it's, it's not my, it's not my demeanor or my brand. I'm, I'm more than happy to say what needs to be said. This particular individual, to his credit, um, whilst he was never going to change his, his policy views so close to an election, um, I have had the very great fortune of spending quite a bit of time talking to since. Um, and after a lot of discussion and he and I had a, um, a really wonderful, um, hot debate about democracy, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and, and we've come to, uh, you know, I would almost call it a friendship now where we speak semi-regularly and we're able to thrash these ideas out. Um, and he is becoming, I, I would describe him as um, becoming a significant advocate of democratic reform. Mm -hmm. And accountability is something else you mentioned. You mentioned also the independence and regulation of media as one of your pillars. Yep. Now, as a former you know, financial journalist for CNBC, of course, the integrity of the media is hugely important. Facts first, not just being first for whatever scoop. But to what extent do you think things are really going wrong with the big media here? And we heard... Oh, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, we, that, we that's a big question. 
to the last four years talking about fake media. And I always, I, I mean, I watch it as, you know, being kind of uh, in the game as well myself. What, what do you say? Uh, so I, I think like democracy itself and like political system, the concern is unique in each jurisdiction. Um, and so, you know, what the United States is going through um, is probably the worst example of propaganda and misinformation at an enterprise-level scale that we've seen since the Nazis, to be perfectly honest with you. And so the issue there is about misinformation. In Australia, the issue is about media consolidation. And so whilst, yes, there is some misinformation, the bigger issue is that Rupert Murdoch owns nearly 80% of all of the media in the whole country, and, so, and he is very much a right-wing propagandist. And so what you have is a guy who controls all the dialogue, can make or break governments, can make or break prime ministers, because if he decides that every newspaper in the country is going to run a particular angle or decide to cut somebody down or build somebody up, that's pretty much what the whole country sees. Um, and so there are, there are a lot of reforms that need to happen. In Australia, I'm a massive advocate. I've, I've spoken and written about this many, many times um, and called for reform to the Australian system many, many years ago. To me, I think um, we need the two things that are, that are required in a well-functioned democracy, and this is, you know, in your country, my country, US, wherever, you need truth in media laws, the kinds that exist in New Zealand and Canada, um, because you have to have a system where the fourth estate needs to tell the truth. That's critical. Uh, if, the, if the media no longer tells the truth, their purpose is gone. And it's worth, it's worth mentioning that all over the world, those media companies have public spectrums. Their ability to broadcast is on a public spectrum. And if they are disseminating false information on a public spectrum, that licence should be taken away from them. Um, the second thing is you need to have a diversification of media that doesn't allow any one individual or group to acquire more than a certain percentage. Everybody has a different view of what that percentage is. I'm of the opinion it shouldn't be more than 25% of media in a particular market. So, you know, as a purist about this, I would say, so if you own 25% of the media because you own the only newspaper in a town, then you shouldn't be able to own the television station and the radio station. Yeah, web's a little bit different because every, everybody has a choice. And I had this argument last night with somebody about this who was saying, yeah, but, you know, how is the internet any different? The internet, you know, Google and, and Facebook, they take all your data and they manipulate it and they push content to you. And I said, yes, but you're choosing to go to those sites. If you live in a city where there's only one newspaper, you didn't choose that that was the only bit of information you could read. And so it really comes about choice and it comes about infrastructure. The media is an infrastructure for a community. Um, and if it's not delivering a multitude of ideas and voices that represent the multitude of diversities within a community, then it's failing us. Now, you know, the multitude of channels we have these days anyway, and you alluded to it, uh, Adam, is just huge. Yes, you have the TV stations, you know, the classical ones, you've got the private ones, and then you have, of course, the internet. And I wonder to what extent really that adds to the conversation or to, um, to being educated about what is really going on because you have a lot of bloggers, they, 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 they push their own agenda as well. And I wonder, you know, how does anybody, Joe Blog, really uh, distinguish between noise and news? What about the fact-checking process in, with, with such a multitude of potential sources of information about one particular issue? Yeah, look, I, I think... That's a real problem. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, that, that there is too much. There, there's too much choice. 
you don't know what's real and what's not real. And, and one set of channels will believe one thing's real and another will say a different thing's real. But I think part of this is also just human psychology. You know, we, we look for tribes, we look for groups where we feel comfortable, where we feel safe and where people believe what we believe. And so when you find a media outlet that reinforces your own worldview, then all of a sudden whatever those people say must be right and the ability to start questioning your own tribe is an incredibly difficult and mature thing to have to be able to do. And for most people, it's too hard to do. And if you come from a place of questioning or curiosity or scepticism um, about data itself and where it came from and who has the vested interest in that data being exposed and so forth, um, then you don't trust any media. You, you're asking those questions of everyone, right? Um, and, th and that's okay, but that is just fucking exhausting, right? It, to do that all the time is just exhausting. And so part of the problem is that if you cut, you know, that's why things like the Canadian and New Zealand truth in media laws, they start to just take away a bit of that hard work so that you go, if it's in the paper, if it's on television, there's a pretty good chance that it's real because otherwise that company is in real trouble. Yeah. Um, and, and that just changes the game a little bit. Yeah. Invested interest is a nice word I want to pick up on, Adam, and that brings me to donations uh, and yep. lobbying in general. That is a system that has been going on. And of course, again, the United States is like the epitome of, okay, money drives whoever uh, may potentially be a candidate and then become a president. That's, is that democracy? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, not, it's not democracy that you need $2 billion to run a presidential campaign. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking around the streets. I'm not finding a whole lot of people with $2 billion in their pocket. Um, the, the other thing is it's not, you know, we're in 2020 and we are celebrating the fact um, that Kamala Harris has been elected as the first um, woman, A woman, B woman of colour and Asia, of Asian descent to ever sit in that office. Well, that country's, you know, nearly 300 years old. And if all you've had is white men for 300 years, it's not exactly representative. And if it's not exactly representative, there's probably a reason for that. Um, and if part of it is that the lobbyists and the people who have money are backing people that all look the same as them and will do the same as them and think the same as them, that's not representative either. Um, and so the underlying tenet of democracy is that every person has one voice and one vote and it's equal. Um, and I, I've said this a lot on stage. You know, I won the lottery of life. I am a white, heterosexual male born into one of the richest countries in the world. I did nothing to deserve that. And my voice, by virtue of that, should not be worth more than anybody else's voice. So I have my opinion and I am entitled to my opinion, just as you are and every other person in the street. But if because I have more money than someone else means that I can get a political outcome that others can't, then the system is broken. Yeah, and no meritocracy. Yeah, well, that's a whole other conversation, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, one fundamental thing uh, I would uh, also ask you, Adam, and that is about the erosion of democracy that we are, we are talking about. Um, there's a lot of people that feel that we have a whole worldwide erosion of values. Do you think that one correlates with the other? Look, I, I, to be honest, I don't even know what that means. Like values, everybody has different values. So um, it, it, what values are we talking about are being eroded is the first question I would have um, because if you're a devout Christian, you might have very different values to a devout Jew who might have different, you know, and if you come from one particular cultural or racial group to another, you, you look at the world differently and you value things differently. 
I think what we're losing is a respect for diversity. I think that's the problem, is that we're saying everything has to look and feel like me and if it doesn't look and feel like me, then I'll see it as a threat rather than see it as an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, and, I, and I think that becomes part of the problem. I think the other thing as it relates to, you know, the vested interest, the media, the political donation and lobbying piece is that if you have, and we, I mean, we've got a great example of it here in Australia. We had a, a member of parliament who freely admitted that he um, took uh, tobacco money and then supported tobacco-related legislation because he took the money. And that guy, there's no ramifications for that in our system. I mean, just straight up can be bought and, and, and there's, you know, you're allowed to do it. I, I think really what we're saying, and for me the best example of this is the gun debate in the United States. And so one of the great um, fortunes of my life, one of the great opportunities of my life was in 2018 I was able to speak at one of the March for Our Lives rallies with um, David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez and, and all of those amazing kids um, and got to spend a couple of days with them in Houston and hear the conversations that they were having and um, see the kind of crowds that they were drawing. Um, and then equally while we were there, there was a pro-gun protest at the rally that we spoke at. And so there were all these people with machine guns and, and the police came up to us and said, we got off the bus and the police said, under no circumstances are you to go over and speak to any of those people, go anywhere near any of those people. And there was literally, so it was in a park and there was, street, there was a street on either side of the park and on the side where all of the pro-gun people were, there were, the whole street was just lines of police cars to, to, to create a division. And we went up, at the, the MyVote people went up to the police captain and said, we have to go and talk to them. We, we're nonpartisan. So as a movement, we're not left or right. We believe everybody's view needs to be heard and everybody has a right to an opinion. We're going to go and talk to them. And he said, well, you know, your life's in your own hands. We're not going to protect you. So we went over and we had an incredibly fascinating conversation, right? But in having the conversation, um, what became really clear about the lobbying position is that the money was not at all about the ideology. It was about business. So when we went over as a naive Australian, we don't have guns in our country in any significant way and uh, you can't easily access a gun. I mean, it's a very rare thing in Australia uh, unless you're a farmer. Um, and so, you know, we, I walked into those conversations assuming that all of those people were massive supporters of the NRA. I couldn't have been more wrong. So within three minutes of speaking to them, I, you know, I, they said, oh, why are you speaking at this rally? Why are you trying to take our guns away? And I said, first of all, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm an Australian. I have nothing to do with this fight. Um, however, um, why do you support the NRA? Why do you support arming more people when all we're talking about here is a group of 16-year-old kids who had their kids, their friends die in front of them in a classroom? How is that appropriate? And what was fascinating about the conversation is that they said, look, we don't support the NRA. The NRA is a movement to support gun manufacturers. All they're interested in is selling more guns and selling more bullets, and we get no benefit from that at all. They said, what we believe in is our rights to bear arms based upon the Constitution. And we're not saying that that should encroach anybody else's life. But what we are saying is that you've already taken away so many of our rights, but you don't enact them. So enact them first, and if after they're enacted properly and you're actually policing them properly, it then doesn't stop kids getting killed at school, we'll be the first people to say take more rights away because we want to create a safe environment. That conversation was fascinating to me. And afterwards, when the crowds left and the speeches were given hours and hours later, it was getting dark into the night, we went back to those people and we brought some of the well-known um, 
much of our lives people with us. And we sat for about an hour with them again. And it was so amazing to see, we've got some of this on video, but um, to see these, pe- these open carry people with these March for Our Lives kids talking about very different perspectives about this issue, but the ability to listen and respectfully try and understand. And it doesn't matter that you don't agree, but what it does matter is that you, you try and be empathetic about the position. Um, now, we're not, we don't all need to agree on anything. And in fact, most of us will never agree with everyone on anything anyway. But, but to be able to come to the conversation based about the issue rather than the colour of the banner that's being worn is the most important thing that we're losing now. Yeah, I think you're touching there on being preconceived, being misunderstood, um, and basically not open-minded. So if you have, you know, a pigeonholed view about a certain association or whatever uh, movement, then you are not open-minded and you can't actually get the true story. And with you approaching saying, hey, we're Australian, we are even out of the game, but tell us your story, truly, you kind of got a different picture than everybody else, I'd say almost, really got in the last few years, Adam. Yeah, it, it was a really unique opportunity and, and I think we need to do more of it. Um, and and I, I think that's really, that's what politicians should be doing. I think they should be bringing these sides together to go, listen, you have a particular view and you have a particular view, but when you have a lobbyist who says, I'll give you $100,000 to your campaign, if you just do what I want to do, that's a hell of a lot easier way to go than actually trying to solve problems. Yeah, conflict of interest, big time. Last question, Adam, um, and I ask that all of my guests. So what do you think are the three key learnings in your journey, uh, really trying to discover what democracy is, what it should be, and how that can be done, you want to pass on? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, whew, with no forewarning, I would say uh, probably first and foremost, um, understand and appreciate your own privilege uh, and and to know that some of us have opportunities that are greater than others but they're not necessarily deserved, they just are what they are, is the first one. Um, the second thing is uh, don't be afraid of people at the end of the day. You know, everybody has a voice and everybody aspires to something and everybody wants their kids to have a better life and they're the things that we share. And so don't be afraid of asking people. So I'm going against Churchill's quote there ask people let's ask people more um and then and then finally i think you have to live your truth um and and you need to be able to say what needs to be said whether whether it's hard or unpopular um you know that's what we've been trying to do with politicians for a number of years now and walk into rooms and it makes people upset but they're the conversations that need to take place so spot on, especially your first point, Adam. I think uh, a lot of people think democracy is only a right. For me, it's a right and a responsibility. And if you want yeah. it, you have to be proactively with it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Adam, well, thank you so much. I'm going to leave all of us with the following quote by Will Rogers. He said, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. Strong words there. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. I hope that's not true for my vote. (laughs) Did you like that? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a really good quote. I haven't seen that quote before. That's a great quote. I, I sent it over to you. I, I did a <laughs> screenshot of it, Adam. Adam, thank you so much for this wonderful, insightful conversation. I think Thanks for having me. My vote. I'm going to be with you for the next 25 years. If I can support you in any way, please let me know. <laughs> By the way, my 15-year-old daughter, she also looked at it and said, oh, how can I get involved? She's, she's you know, She likes politics quite a bit. Um, awesome. So we are definitely on your journey. Thank you so much for being here. And Thanks for having time. me. Thank you. Thanks so much.
And thank you as well, my dear Mentory TV community, for having joined us yet again for a fascinating conversation, this time with Adam Jacoby, the founder and CEO of MyVote. I hope to see you soon again. Bye. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.